My title today, as we continue in our series about the early church and our study of the book of Acts, will probably grab your attention. How to have a megachurch without gimmicks, worldly music, or seeker-friendly sermons. In the last 40 or more years, there's been many attempts to grow churches. And as a pastor, I certainly don't want a church to not grow. It would just be a, a normal thing for a pastor to want and for people to want a church that is growing. But there have been a lot of gimmicks along the way to make that happen. One church actually installed a water slide into their baptistry. Now, although that sounds very tempting, it's not something that a church should have, obviously. Uh, churches have incorporated music shows and, and lighting in their normal weekly services that would match any secular concert. There's been a move to non-offensive, non-confrontational preaching. It's called seeker-friendly. And there's also been a move lately to branch out into multi-site churches that it's kind of like you want to open a Chick-fil-A or you want to open a McDonald's, you open your whatever brand church franchise that you want in multiple places. And I've always wondered how, if there's one pastor that they bring in over video, how does he visit people in the hospital? And how, how do they do those interpersonal things that a pastor should do with a flock as an under-shepherd? So I've always been a little bit leery of these types of things. And I'm going to read you an article about the one that really set off what we call the seeker-friendly movement. And it happened right in our own backyard. As a matter of fact, as our church was starting in 1971, so was this other church. And it was, I think it was even in the same town. Uh, we were on Quint Road in Palatine, Illinois. And this uh, Willow Creek was at the Willow Creek Theater. And I believe that was Palatine. If not, it's really close around the same exact time. Uh, the article I'm going to give you was written about this. And the author says, the man considered to be the granddaddy of the seeker-sensitive movement in the U.S. is Bill Hybels, founding pastor of Willow Creek Church in Chicago. As a young 23-year-old, he set out to discover a new way of doing church. He began by, talk, uh, he began by taking a poll of neighborhood residents, asking the non-churched what it was about church that kept them from participating. He got the typical answers, boring services, overly long sermons, irrelevance, and of course, the greatest of all excuses, there are hypocrites in, in the church. And you know what I tell people when they say, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites? I'm saying, you know what? You can come. We, we could use one more hypocrite in our church because uh, we really all, all are. And, and look, some of these are, are real issues, right? We don't want to have overly long and, and, and boring sermons. I, I think a better sermon is a shorter sermon. And we try, you, you say, yeah, but pastor, you've been preaching longer and longer. I've been tracking you and you're probably right. But, um, anyways, th these were, these were the responses to his survey. Uh, so determining that he would neither be boring, continuing to read the article, nor irrelevant, 
he carefully shaped a church service that would be attractive to those who had little use for traditional Christianity. He instituted short services, casual dress, and sermons that addressed here and now needs rather than distant heaven and hell issues that most churches centered on. He got rid of all religious symbols, such as crosses, to make the seekers feel more comfortable and made continual use of drama and multimedia. And let me just make a comment there. Again, I feel like using technology isn't wrong. We, we use technology. We, we have projectors. We, we try to, to use the technology that we have to reinforce a, a message. But I think we can certainly overdo anything, right? The ingredients came together, I continue to quote, and worked better than he could have ever hoped. The church grew from a handful to become one of the largest churches in America with around 15,000 attending weekly. But because everyone loves a winner... He soon had his imitators and began to hold conferences to instruct frustrated pastors in this new approach to ministry. At least some elements of the seeker-sensitive approach can be found in probably half of America's evangelical churches, end quote. And so let's talk about this a little bit and, and let's go through Acts 2 and discuss how can we have a maybe not a mega church, but at least a healthy church and a, and a growing church without these, the, without compromising. Okay. Uh, all of these non-biblical methods are, I believe, going to fail. And, and often, especially the seeker friendly, they focus so much on evangelism. They haven't had any good t- teaching and doctrine and, and you can't, you can't make a solid people without that. You have to really disciple and, and grow people. And that's something they eventually admitted that they, they, they were lacking. Uh, and again, here's what I feel about those that want to have a seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly church. I think in some ways, that's not a, a terrible thing because we definitely don't want to purposely offend people. But if we're just preaching the word of God and offending people, that's that's different, isn't it? Because we have to stick with what God has said. Um, in our series on Acts, we see the church exploding from just a few hundred people to over 3,000 in one day. Now, every pastor that I know that would have such a growth in one day would probably just faint. They would just faint. But this is what was happening. This was followed, this was following a powerful poking and poignant sermon by Peter. Remember Peter? Just a few weeks earlier, he was a coward and running away and denying Christ. All of a sudden, he's this powerful preacher. What was what had changed? He had seen the resurrected Jesus and he now had the spirit of God in him and his sermons, especially this first one, was just powerful. Let me give you a few verses that we've already covered, but let's go over it again. Acts 2.20 The sun, Peter said, turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Not super seeker friendly. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. 
So you have the, the, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. You have the gospel in there. You have some zingers. And, and it has to be truthful. And it has to be God-ordained as preachers preach. And we need to be heavy in the word of God. A lot of the seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly type churches, the model, they've just taken out anything offensive. Well, again, I don't think we should be purposefully offensive. And some people have accused some preachers as being fire and brimstone. Uh, and, and we do need to be wise on how we come across. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.22. Paul said to win people, he would become, uh, he, to the weak, he became weak, that he might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means gain some. So there should be some uh, part of us that says, okay, we, we definitely don't want to, you know, some people are holding up signs that say in public that you're going to hell. And I'm not sure that that's the best way to win people or, you know, certain bumper stickers that people have um, that, you know, turn or burn, try or fry. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that that's the best approach. But when it comes to saying truth, we need to say truth, whether it's offensive or not. We can't water down what God has clearly said. And if fire and brimstone is in the future for unbelievers, we would be criminal to not say that. And so let's keep that in mind as we look at that, that whole idea. And it's something that we try to have music that has life and, and we have beautiful lights and, and a beautiful room, but that's not our, our aim. That's not our thrust. That's not the most important thing in our life. We want to make sure we center on this book, the word of God, and, and we want to preach it and we want to be heavy in scripture, every message and every teaching that we do. So after Peter's sermon on Pentecost, the sermon that I just read you a few lines from, this was the crowd's response. Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They gladly received the gospel. Then they were baptized and they re- re- received 3,000 souls. 3,000. Instant megachurch, no gimmicks, no seeker-friendly sermons, no music, and uh, they cheerfully and joyfully received it. I love that. Conversion can't be by compulsion. They have to, people have to freely receive the gospel, which is something that I'm so glad the gospel is so simple and it's free and, and you can share it and people can receive it freely, gladly, cheerfully. And their conversion, by the way, was instantaneous. Some people that teach that it takes a whole long process to get saved. It's a whole lifetime of works and you're never really sure. 3,000 believed and were saved, folks. Instantaneous. Salvation happens in an instant at the moment of faith. You say, well, I'm not sure when I, when I had that moment of faith. I don't remember that moment of faith. And to be honest, I'm not sure if I remember the exact moment when I was young, but I know for sure when I was young, I put my trust in Jesus Christ and I know for sure I'm on my way to heaven. And I hope that you've had that, that moment of realization in your life. And you know instantaneously that you went from death to life. You went from not born in God's family to to born again in God's family. So I also love that it used the word souls. There's something that uh, when you're flying in an airplane, if you have something go wrong, you're supposed to, if it's an emergency, you're supposed to, on the frequency, declare an emergency. 
you say mayday, 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 pon, 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 or uh, this is, you know, the plane we flew was uh, Cirrus 385 Charlie. We're declaring an emergency. I've never declared one, but it, what, it, what it does, once you declare an emergency, it, the air traffic controller now is freed up to be just focused on you, making sure he gets you to the closest airport, that everything, that everything ends uh, fine, that no one gets hurt. And, and they move all the other airplanes out of the way. They get the emergency vehicles rolling. But one thing the controller will ask a pilot, and I, I, I just recently heard a pilot that had built his own airplane, and he put this huge turbine. A turbine is a jet engine, but it was spinning a propeller. It was the fastest turboprop in the world he made. The engine blew up in flight. He was high altitude. He had lots of time, but smoke was coming in. And the controllers are trained to ask, ask this question. How much fuel on board and how many souls on board? He said when he heard the controller ask how many souls, because he had a, a good friend sitting next to him, it just hit him hard. Like, I've got somebody's life. Yeah, his life was, was a concern of his, but more than that was the person that he had brought into this airplane that he had invited. And, and when you say the word soul, there's, there's an eternity to it, right? When you say the word soul, you're not just talking about someone's life. You're talking about someone that is an eternal being, a soul. And 3,000 souls, souls were saved. We're out there looking to win souls. First uh, Peter 3.20 talked about the days of Noah where there were eight souls, eight souls saved on that ark, saved by water. And so it's important to remember that every person is an eternal soul that needs to hear the gospel. Acts 2.42, this is what happened next. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Somebody would say to me, hey, Pastor Scudder, what is the hallmark of a healthy, uh, God-honoring, real church? I'll, I'll just say this. Look at Acts 242. Um, how do you, uh, how can you identify someone? One way to identify a person is by a fingerprint, a fingerprint. Uh, and I'm fascinated by fingerprints. In 1858, a British magistrate named William Herschel realized that every person had a unique and unchanging fingerprint. There's basically three fingerprint patterns, the arch, the loop, and the whorl. And your fingerprint won't ever change. No two fingerprints are identical. Even twins, identical twins have different fingerprints. Isn't that cool? So if you were to say, okay, what is the identifying print, the fingerprint, if you will, the four marks of a, of a godly church, what would they be? Well, we just read it. Number one, this church, this early church, this church that... The, the, remember Acts is about the concentric circles, Jerusalem, like you throw a rock in a pond and you have that first little splash and the ring goes further to Judea, the region, the larger region, Samaria, and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. This is a big splash in Jerusalem. This is that ring that's just starting to grow. And this church, not only were they saved, but they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is the first hallmark of a healthy church, of a real church, as a church that is continually steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. It's not the height of a steeple. 
It's not the sign of the bell, sound of the bell. And by the way, those are probably uh, things that the newer churches don't have. I know we don't have a steeple and we don't have a bell. Uh, but it's not, that's not the measure to God of the most impressive church. I know that when you travel and you go to Paris or you go to Washington, D.C., you see these huge steeples and these beautiful edifice churches. That doesn't impress God. It's not about that. It's not about the number of seats or the number of pews. The important issue is whether or not a church is holding to sound doctrine that is clearly given in Scripture. They were continually steadfast in this doctrine. And that means that they were attending, they were remaining, that they were not leaving or forsaking. There's a word in Acts 10.7. Look at Acts 10.7. It's talking about Cornelius after he had heard from God, heard from an angel that he was supposed to send people to go to Joppa. He was up in Caesarea Philippi in Israel, or Caesarea Maritima by the sea, and go get Peter, and Peter was going to come and give them the gospel. So he said that he took two servants in his household and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. That word continually is the same word. It's the same idea. These were people that attended to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, to whatever he needed. They didn't leave his side. That was their job. That was their calling. And that's how we need to be when it comes to continually continuing to be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. In the scripture, the word doctrine simply means teaching. And the expression here shows that they were continuing to attend to the apostles' instruction. Number two, the second fingerprint of a church that is godly, that is real, that is right, is one that is continuing in fellowship. It says that they continued steadfast in fellowship. They had great fellowship together. They were sharing. What's fellowship? It's not just kind of uh, yucking it up with, with friends and talking about fishing and golf and whatever we talk about. It's, it's sharing the things of God. It's sharing the things of Christ with other people that know Christ. And we all have that same hope of heaven. We all have the, the same joys. We, we all should have the, hate, the same hatred of sin, the same enemies. And so we can come together in fellowship around that commonality in Christ. And they continued in that fellowship. It said that they continued in communion or it said in breaking of bread. Now, I think it's more than just breaking of bread, having a meal. And that was very, very, very common. In the Middle East today, you will hardly ever sit down at a meal and not be served pita. Some of the best bread in the entire world is pita bread. And they would break it and they would use it. They wouldn't have utensils. They would have pita bread and they would scoop up whatever. And just, it was a breaking bread was a very, very common thing for meals. So it was that certainly it was just, they had that, that common fellowship breaking of bread, but it was also the breaking of bread at communion, the breaking of bread to remember the broken body of Jesus as he told them to do it as often as they need to, to remember him. We will be doing this again on Sunday, remembering Jesus through communion. And this is one of the important things that a church needs to be doing. And then the fourth hallmark that we find here in Acts 2.42, it said that they continued steadfastly also in prayers, in prayers. I think this is the greatest asset of any church and it's the greatest need. I think it's the most neglected thing of most churches is that we are not spending enough time in prayer. 
as, as Christians, as a church. What should we pray for? Well, we should pray for God's blessings, for God's grace, for our own life, to, to be able to reach other souls, to be able to uh, share not just the gospel, but to share the, the doctrines of Christ and help people to grow, to further the kingdom of Christ and see the salvation of men. The next verse in Acts 2 says in verse 43, the, and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Now, why does it say fear? Why does it say fear? What does that mean? Are they, were they afraid? You know, it, it's kind of like, you ever seen a dog that's getting, uh, that's gotten beat? That dog will put that tail between his legs and will always be skittish and, and afraid. That's not what we're talking about. What's the fear talk? I think this is a, this is the type of reverence we need to have for God and his power. That we serve a God that is powerful, who loves us, but, but a God who is one that, that has a certain way and a certain plan. And we reverence that. We respect that in a very real way. And they had that. Now, I think reverence will keep us from doing really stupid things. Um, I, I almost look at it as we have great reverence for electricity. Not many of you are going to stick your fingers in an outlet, right? Why? Because you have reverence or a fear of that electricity, but it doesn't mean you're not going to use it. It's not going to mean you're not going to flip on a light or, or use a, use a hairdryer because it's wonderful, but we still have a reverence. We have a respect. We have a, a fear of that. I think this reverence is going to keep us from doing stupid things. Uh, like what? Well, there was a man that went into a Wells Fargo bank. He was planning to rob it. He took one of the deposit slips and he wrote a crude note with all sorts of terrible spelling. This is a stick up. Is was I-Z. Stick up. S-T-I-K-U-P. Put all the money, M-U-N-N-Y, in this bag. He stood in line. But as he was standing there, he started to get nervous. because He thought, well, maybe somebody saw me write this note. So he rushed out of the bank and he went across the street to another bank. It was a Bank of America. There he waited in line. He hands the teller the note. After reading the note, the teller determined that he wasn't the brightest. And so she told him that she couldn't accept the stick-up note because it was written on a Wells Fargo deposit slip. And he would either have to fill out one on a Bank of America deposit slip or go over to Wells Fargo. Looking somewhat defeated, the man said, okay, and returned to the Wells Fargo, where he was promptly arrested. Isn't that funny? I mean, true story. True story. But we can do the dumbest thing. Another guy went into a convenience store. He had a gun. He demanded the cashier to put all the money uh, from the register into a bag. And then he noticed some scotch on a shelf behind the register. And he said, I demand that scotch. And the lady said, well, I don't think you're 21. Oh, yes, I am. I, I don't think you are. Yes, I am. Well, you're going to have to show me some identification. So he did. He shows her his driver's license. He gets the scotch. He's over 21. He leaves and the police arrive because she gave the police his name and address. We can do the dumbest things, but that's why we need to have a reverence, a fear of God. And, and we need to know what he has to say. We need to know the way he wants us to live and, and, and know that we have the power of God in us to do those things that we know we should do and not do those things that we know we should not do. Now, it also said that uh, they were going to hold everything in common, okay? 
hold everything in common. That's in, in Acts 2, 44 and 45. Uh, some people immediately think of, in 46, some people immediately think of communism or socialism. And I'm going to read through this first, and then I'm going to comment on that. It says in Acts 2.44, And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. So what was this need? Well, first of all, they had 3,000 brand new baby Christians that were going to be, of course, bundles of joy, but also people that would make accidents, Right? So there was a great need for people to help people during this time. Remember, the early church and and any church even today shouldn't just make converts an admirable quality of any seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive church. We should want to win souls, but if that's all we're focused on, we're not going to do the next main thing, and that's make disciples. Why is it important to make disciples? Because then you can win the world by multiplication, not just by addition. In other words, there's no way that if we all went out and just won souls ourselves that we could win the world. But if you win a soul and you teach them how to win a soul and they win souls and you teach them how to win souls, we can reach the whole world. Discipleship is an important part of church. And the early church was doing that right. They, they, they were all together. They had all things common. They were so excited that they sold their possessions and, and put it all together to help every man as they had need. And, and that's what Matthew 28 says to do in verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we're to go, we're to win, we're to baptize, we're to train and teach and raise up disciple. And this church was unified. And it was multiplying. What an exciting time. What an amazing time it must have been. And I hope that, that our church, every church, can have that, that unity. And we, we've had an amazing unity in all of our years. Okay, let's go back to this idea of everything in common. Because it's also mentioned in Acts 4 later. We'll cover it again. Again, I don't think this is socialism or communism. I don't believe in those things because those are compulsory. This, what they were doing was voluntary. It was a result of of a spiritual calling. It wasn't a social experiment. And let's just put it this way. Imagine if you were suddenly shipwrecked and you were with six other people and you're on a desert island and and, and there's nothing else there and all all you six need to survive. What are you going to do? You're all going to find out what you have And you're going to put it all together and use it all together for the good of everybody else. That's what was happening in Acts. That's what was happening in the early church. And I hope that we have that same attitude. Now, I'm not telling you to go sell everything you have and give it to those in need, certainly. But I I hope that you have that that excitement, that attitude, that you are a giver, that, that you're willing to do that if that's what God calls you to do. And certainly, that was what was happening in the time. And it must have been amazing. Acts 2.46 says, And they continued daily with one accord in their temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Someone said it this way, The Christians you meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week 
for services as usual. They met daily. They cared daily. They won souls daily. Why? Because the risen Christ was a living reality to them. And his resurrection power was at work in their lives through the spirit. Oh, can we have that vision? Can we, you know, you haven't physically seen the resurrected Christ, but, but in a sense we have, because we've been able to read through all of these accounts. And I hope in our, with our eyes of faith, we can have seen Christ and that realization that it's real, that he's alive, that he's powerful, that he's working among us will give us that, that encouragement to do those things for the Lord, to have that same attitude, to say, oh, I don't want to meet more than once a week and have a service as usual. Uh, we love meeting more than once a week here, as you know. So many of these uh, believers, why, why were they needing so much help? Well, remember, a lot of them were from out of town. They were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, one of the, the Jewish holy days. And they had come a long way. And, and probably some said, I'm going to stay. I can't leave. This is too exciting. And so they needed to, you know, they weren't planning to be there that long. And so they needed help and they needed food and they needed a place to stay. So there was this commonality and, and they were trying to help people for that reason. Also, I'm guessing that some of the people that got saved that day lost their family and lost their job. I promise you that happened. And many of them, by the way, would eventually lose their freedom or their life. That's how serious it was in that day. And even in parts of the world here today, in our world, it's still happening. Persecution of Christians. So as people were being persecuted, they also didn't have an income and they needed that help. And the people of God came together and they did that in powerful and amazing ways. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. What an amazing church that must have been. What an exciting time that must have been. What a powerful sermon that Peter had just preached. Certainly, it wouldn't be considered a popular sermon in our churches today. But certainly, it is It is scripture. It is God-breathed. And I hope pastors are bold enough to just preach the word of God as it is. Not add anything, not take anything away. Have a heart for the lost. Try to do everything they can to not be offensive. But when you're just preaching the word of God, you're just going to let the chips fall where they may. And praising God, having favor with all the people, which is an amazing thing, by the way. How do you have favor with all the people? Well, one... uh, uh, one person wrote this way. This was a, uh, a philosopher in the second, tr- second century. Uh, early, uh, the early church was finding favor with the common people. So he wrote this to a king. Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth. For they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth. For this reason, they do not commit adultery or immorality. They do not bear false witness or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother. They do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They, they don't worship idols made with in the image of man. They refuse to worship strange gods. They go all their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, he wrote. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. And they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. What a testimony. 
What a powerful testimony of, of a body of believers that were doing the work of God in their culture, in their day, in their cities. And I hope that we have that, that we can find favor among the people, among the common people, just because of the way we live and love. And may this be our testimony. May we draw others to Jesus. May this allow growth in our church and every church. May other pastors get back to preaching the whole counsel of God. May many be saved and discipled until Jesus returns. Amen. And then Acts 2 ends in the second half of 47. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I think that could be easily translated as would be saved. Uh, people were getting saved and they were being added to the church and this was just happening and there was so much excitement and so much joy. The circle, the splash had happened in Jerusalem and now that wave would go and go and go and eventually reach you and eventually reach me because we are pretty far away from Jerusalem. Those of you that have gone to Israel on an airplane, it seems like a long journey. Have you ever done it on a ship? Or on a boat, or on a, uh, I don't know if you can walk to Israel, but I'm certainly, uh, it's a long way, right? But the gospel came to you. It came to me. Somebody brought the gospel to us. Somebody brought the word to us. And we need to be praising God for that, for the testimony, for the early church, for the excitement. And I hope that we can have that early church enthusiasm here at Quint Road and in every church in the world. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is a really simple message. How were they saved? They heard that there was this man named Jesus who is God who created us, but we sinned and he came to die for our sins on a cross. He was perfect. He died for our sins. He shed his blood. He rose again the third day and he invites, Jesus invites you to put your trust in him. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, referring to himself, that whosoever believeth in him. It's not about religion. It's not about church attendance. It's not about reforming yourself. It's about believing in Jesus who died on a cross and rose again. You should not perish, Jesus said, which is hell, but have everlasting life. My friends, that's the good news. And I hope that you have received Jesus by faith today.